Well, hey, BSCC, I am so glad that you've decided to join us online for worship this morning. Though the circumstances that we find ourselves in are certainly less than ideal, I just want to say that I am so incredibly thankful for all of the hard work that our staff, our volunteers, and our overseers have put in over the course of the last month and a half just to make sure that ministry doesn't stop. And so we just want to say thank you so much uh, for riding this wave with us and being a part of this journey with us. Uh, to kind of kick things off this morning, I have a question for you, and it's simply this. What have you done to help you cope with the changes that you have experienced uh, during the craziness of this time? You know, maybe you're working from home now instead of from the office. Maybe you're cooking way more meals than you were previously and spending a lot more money on groceries. Maybe you're spending a lot more time with your spouse and your kids than you could have ever wished for yourself. Um, I'll just say, you know, it's been such a blessing to spend all this time with my wife, Sarah. We've had so much fun finding creative ways to spend our evenings together. We've watched several Netflix shows. One that I would recommend uh, to watch as a family together is called Kindness Diaries. You can find that on Netflix. It's a great, wholesome show. Um, We've done puzzles together, we've gone on walks, we've sketched and painted. Sarah even cut my hair once. Um, and we just had so much fun doing all these things. But I'm not so naive to think that she doesn't need a break from me every now and then. Uh, just the other day, for example, she was working out upstairs in our townhome, uh, right above me actually as I was working and, and preparing this sermon. And some of the exercises that she was doing required her to kind of jump around and move around a little bit, and it was kind of noisy, which she didn't know because she couldn't hear it. You know, she was up there, and so I, I called her, and I kindly suggested, you know, maybe you should come downstairs to do the rest of your workout because our neighbors can probably hear the noise, and they probably don't like it very much, and she responded and said, oh, you know, I, I didn't realize it was that noisy. I, I just won't do those exercises, and I, I responded. I said, no, 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 it's okay. You know, you can come downstairs and do them. Like, you're not going to be a distraction to me. Seriously, it's fine. Come on down, and she kindly responded and said, no, I don't want to be down there with you right now. <laughs> and so while all this time that families have been able to spend together has certainly been amazing and wholesome, I'm sure, at some point, if we're being honest, we need some space from each other. You know, we need some, some at-home social distancing. And so I'm proud to share, uh, you know, that in order to really help love and serve my wife, I have committed to spending a great amount of time at the disc golf course and a great amount of time fishing. Uh, you know, it would just, just to make sure that she gets that alone time that she needs. Sometimes we just have to make sacrifices for the people that we love. And, you know, I, I'm just proud to announce that I've committed to loving and serving my wife in that way. And so the question again for you is, what have you done to help yourself or your family deal with the amount of time that we have to spend indoors during this pandemic? We would love for you to share some of your ideas in the comments below on whatever platform that you're watching this service on. And as you do that, I'd just like to introduce our topic for this morning. Last week, Dave kicked off the first week of a three-week series called Embracing Truth. We feel that now, more than ever, it is important to have clarity about what is truth and what is myth. It's incredibly important for us to be constantly growing in our understanding of who God is, just seeking to gain clarity about what is truth about him and what is myth about him. Dave said last week that how you view yourself, how you view your circumstances, and how you view what's going on in the world right now, all of those things are affected by how you view God. And in a time like this, you know, people are taken to social media with all kinds of thoughts, opinions, and, and ideas about God, some of which are helpful and some of which maybe not so much. And so in this series, uh, we are approaching each topic with this question. Is this saying biblically sound, or does it just sound biblical? And so today, the second myth in this series that we are going to take a look at is that God helps those who help themselves. The myth is that God helps those who help themselves. Now, 
Numerous surveys have found that a good number of Americans believe not only that the Bible teaches this idea, but that it actually says it. I know that I've had a well-meaning Christian friend quote this phrase to me before, and I would venture to guess that a good number of you listening today have also heard this phrase, or maybe even said it yourself, that God helps those who help themselves. Now, what's fascinating about this phrase is that it actually finds its roots in 5th century Greek mythology in a story by Aesop. In this story, there's a character who prays to the Greek god Hercules for help, and Hercules responds with the charge to get to work because the gods help them that help themselves. Now, this phrase made its way across the pond to America in 1736, thanks to Ben Franklin, when the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, appeared in Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac, and it has pretty much been ingrained and our cultural values ever since. Now, knowing that, it's not hard to understand why this idea seems so American. And I'll explain more what I mean by that here in just a moment, but unfortunately for a lot of people, their thoughts and and beliefs about God are formed and developed more around beliefs that are at the center of our culture than beliefs that are at the center of the Bible. And this is a very dangerous place to be for two reasons. One, if we let our culture shape our understanding of who God is and the expectations that we have of him, we can end up believing in a God who looks, sounds, thinks, and acts in ways that fit our own personal agendas. Or two, on the other side of the spectrum, we can end up hating the idea of a God who is portrayed by people who claim to follow him, but may not really actually portray and reflect his heart. And I say, I will say, you know, this isn't just an American problem. All right, every culture throughout the world has to wrestle with the presuppositions of their specific worldview. No one is completely unbiased in their viewpoints. Everyone's ideas, values, and beliefs are shaped and developed by the environment in which they are living. But this particular myth that we're looking at today, I think certainly stems from some cultural values that we've allowed to creep in and shape kind of an unhealthy and inaccurate view of God. And I believe this stems from the exact same reason that Dave talked about last week, and that is that we live in a very self-reliant culture. I mean, think about it, right? We hear stories all the time about people who came from nothing. They built themselves from the ground up. They went from rags to riches. They picked themselves up by their bootstraps. And this is a very celebrated part of our culture. I mean, it's part of the American dream. And those things certainly aren't bad or wrong things. You know, I would even say that they're they're noble and, and admirable and even worthy of celebration. But I think that the problem is those values have crept in and they've led us to think maybe a little too highly of ourselves. And that value of self-reliance has, has caused us to believe and trust in concepts like our myth for today that God helps those who help themselves. And unfortunately, this has deeply impacted the way we understand who God is and who he has called us to be as his followers. Now, there may be a few different reasons why you believe the myth that God helps those who help themselves. Maybe it's because we like to believe, you know, that we made it on our own. And if others would just do what we did and work as hard as we did, then they can make it themselves too. Uh, Maybe at times we believe this myth so that we don't have to feel responsible for for helping others, right? God helps those who help themselves, and that releases us of that responsibility of helping others. Or maybe we just believe this myth out of frustration for people who we think are lazy or taking advantage of the system. I don't know why you may believe this, but here's the truth that I think is more in alignment with, with what Scripture teaches. The myth is that God helps those who help themselves, but the truth is that God helps those who can't help themselves. God helps those who can't help themselves. And how do we know this? 
Well, I think the answer to that question can be found in the person and the work of Jesus, and that is going to be our focus this morning. So let's start with the scripture. John chapter 1, verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Among us. Now, you know this, the, the word, word that's mentioned here is in reference to Jesus. A few verses up in, in John chapter 1, he tells us that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you were raised in church, this is something that you've likely heard again and again, but it's possible that, honestly, you don't give this concept much thought other than around Christmas time when we celebrate the birth of Christ. But we're going to kind of hash out this idea today because I think that We really need to understand the significance of the incarnate God in order to truly have a correct biblical understanding of what it means that God helps those who can't help themselves. Why? Because our goal is to imitate the incarnation. Our goal is to imitate the incarnation. Our number one goal as followers of Christ is to be exactly that, a follower It is our goal and purpose to be with the kind of people he was with, to serve the kind of ways that he served, and to love the kind of ways that he loved. Our goal is to imitate the incarnation. Now, you may be asking, what what do I mean when I say the incarnation? Well, the incarnation is just a fancy theological term for the idea that the God of the universe robed himself in the very human flesh that he created. The word incarnate comes from the Latin, and it literally means in the flesh. So in short, what this means is that God became a man. So that's what I mean when I say the incarnation or I talk about the incarnate God. Now, the idea of the incarnation, that God would would limit himself to the mere flesh of a human being, is frankly kind of difficult to wrap our minds around. But it's so significant because it shows us the distance to which our God will go to meet us in our mess. And this morning, I want to talk about why this truth should transform the way we understand him and the way we understand our calling as his followers. So we're just going to explore two ideas and points that I think will help us understand why the incarnation is the central piece to our correct understanding of what God's help looks like, both biblically and practically. So the first point is this. The first point is that the incarnate God is near to us. The incarnate God is is near to us. Now, this is made evident in our key verse for the morning that we read just a moment ago, John chapter 1, verse 14, which says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Now, the word that's used here for made his dwelling in the original Greek language literally means to take up residence. And so if the word that's being referenced here really is God, which is in fact what we read in verse 1, then this means that God chose to take up residence with his people by becoming like his people and being found amongst his people. This is such an important piece when it comes to understanding the, the help and the care that he makes available. God came to us in the person of Jesus in order to reverse the devastating effects of sin and allow us to know him intimately like he created us to. Genesis chapter 3 tells us that in the Garden of Eden, God walked with man. He dwelt among his creation because that's how he intended for it to be. But the curse of sin disrupted that unity with God. And it caused this great divide between the creator and the created. And a divide that only he had the power and the ability to bridge. And the way that he chose to bridge that gap was by dwelling among us again. He chose to limit himself to the finite nature of a human being so that even in our sinful nature, we could know him. I mean, what, what incredible love that is. 
Well, one of my favorite, all-time favorite descriptions of the incarnation is actually in a song that was written by Hillsong Worship, and it's called Arrival. I encourage you to, to check it out and listen to it after the sermon. The song just paints such a, a beautiful picture of what it means that God became a man. So here's what some of the, the lyrics say. They ask, who is God that he would take our frame? The artisan inside the paint. Or breathe the very air his breath sustains. The architect inside the plant. A little later, they sing this. The one who had no start and knows no end became confined in time intense. The everlasting God, the great I am, and the mercy of a mother's hand. Oh, come now, hail his arrival. The God of creation, royalty robed in the flesh he created. Jesus, the maker, has made himself known. All hail the infinite, infant God. Now, this technically is a Christmas song, but I like to listen to it all year round because I love the way that it celebrates the improbability that the creator and sustainer of all things would confine himself to the very flesh that he created. That he would entrust himself as an infant and a toddler to two imperfect human parents and climb inside the pages of his own story and narrative to free his creation from the captivity of sin and death. This is the, the incredible truth that Paul teaches us in Colossians chapter 1. In verse 15, he says this, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So the Son, talking here about Jesus, made tangible and physical the heart and the character of God by becoming flesh and being found in human form. And then he goes on in verses 16 and 17 to say, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So Paul is saying that Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. The incarnate God holds all things together. And this God has willingly come near to us and, and made himself personally available to us. We don't have to go searching far and wide, seeking after some sort of spiritual enlightenment or some sort of, uh, chase some sort of uh, spiritual fulfillment. We just have to look to the person of Jesus. And this is evident in an encounter that we find in John chapter 14 where Philip, who was one of Jesus' disciples, is struggling to grasp this concept of God's nearness. And he says this to Jesus. He says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. They wanted to see God. They wanted a vision like the prophets of old. They requested this because they didn't yet understand who Jesus was. They didn't understand that he was God in the flesh. But listen to how Jesus responds in verse 9. He says, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. God has made himself personally available to every individual through the person of Jesus. And this is incredible, incredible news. But what does it mean for us? What, what does this idea mean for us? Remember back to a little earlier in the message, I said our number one goal as followers of Christ is to imitate the incarnation. To imitate the incarnation. So if that's what we are to do, if we are to imitate the incarnation, if we are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, you know, what does that practically look like? I think, you know, if God is near, which is what we've been talking about, I guess that means that, that we should be near as well. But what does it look like for us to be near? Well, I think it looks a lot like us simply just being present where we are and being present with those who we are with. 
I truly believe that if we chose to be present where we are, and if we chose to be present with those whom we are with, that that would improve every single relationship that we have, starting with our relationship with God. You know, how often do we sit down to read our Bible or to pray and spend some time with the Lord and we just get distracted? I know this happens to me. We have so many things on our mind, so many things to check off of our to-do list that we just can't seem to give our undivided attention to our Maker. We try to pray and our minds just wander. We try to read and we get 10 notifications on our phone that leads to mindless scrolling. And rather than being present with God, over time we, we grow distant from Him because our distractions don't allow us to create habits and routines that really deepen our connection and our relationship with Him. And unfortunately, this often translates into our interpersonal relationships too. Too often a spouse chooses to keep secrets and keep distance from their spouse to protect their heart. Uh, Parents may be physically present, but they choose not to be emotionally available because of technology in their hands or fatigue from their job or a secret sin that they're living in. Friendships become damaged because we we tend to choose pride and laziness over love. I mean, what what if we committed today to just being present? If we simply chose to be devoted to our relationship to God, be devoted in that relationship and not let anything come between that. And then we commit ourselves to being present with one another in honesty and availability and in heartfelt effort. What what could happen? What could our relationships look like? What would our, our home, our church, our community look like? And I think this question is incredibly important to ask right now more than ever. Because what an amazing time to practice living incarnationally by being present with one another. Uh, An example of what this could look like, our young adult ministry here at BSCC uh, chose to practice some intentionality in our interpersonal relationships this past week, actually. Um, You know, we typically meet on Wednesday nights, and over the course of the last month and a half, we've been meeting online on Zoom. Uh, But the decision was made this week, rather than uh, gathering together virtually online for our small group, what we would do is something different uh, by finding a way to just practically serve other people. So here are a few examples of how some of my friends chose to be present in some simple but creative ways this week. Cassie and Aaron decided that they would serve some of their college friends by door dashing them some treats as just a way to say, hey, we're thinking about you. Uh, Corey and Kaylin chose to handwrite and deliver some just notes of encouragement to all the neighbors that lived on their block. Thomas and his family committed to picking up trash along Duncan Road just to help keep the area clean. Michaela made some cards and and dropped off some candy for her friends who had to come home from college early for the semester. Sarah and I, we decided to purchase a few gift cards to scout coffee and to hand them to our neighbors so that they could get out of the house and enjoy a cup of coffee on us. Now, these are just a few examples, and none of these things are are earth-shattering, right? They, They probably didn't transform anyone's life, and none of them really required all that much time and energy, honestly. But each of us chose to be intentional and present in the lives of others because that is what the person of Jesus modeled in his relationships. And if we are going to imitate the incarnate God, we must follow in the footsteps, his footsteps that lay before us. You know, when I was a kid, anytime that that it would snow and I would go outside, I, I would go out with my dad and I would follow behind him in his path, putting my little foot in the footprint that he left behind in the snow. I would know where it was safe to walk based on the footprint that he left behind him. I would do my best to make my little legs stretch the length of his stride so that my footprint could land in his and I wouldn't end up getting any snow in my shoe. But it didn't always happen. You know, sometimes even I'd fall off balance and I'd, I'd plop down into the snow, but my dad would always be there, be near me, to pick me back up. And man, that's how it is when we follow Jesus. 
He has laid the tracks before us. And if we just jump from footprint to footprint, doing our best to to imitate what he has already done. But here's the thing. If we truly want to follow in the footprints of Jesus, we have to understand that that path that we are following, those footprints that we are stepping in, they're ultimately going to lead us to a cross. And that leads to our second point for today, which is the incarnate God gave himself for us. The incarnate God gave himself for us. And to explore this idea, I want to go back to the text that we were looking at in Colossians chapter 1 a little bit ago, down to verses 19 and 20. Paul says this about Jesus. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Now, the improbability of of God becoming flesh takes an even more improbable turn and leads to an even more improbable outcome, the death of the Creator. Verse 20 here tells us that the purpose of Jesus' death was ultimately to make peace and to offer healing that couldn't be achieved any other way. There There was no way for God's creation to experience liberation from the effects of their sin if He didn't deal with it Himself which points us back to the truth that God helps those who can't help themselves. And church, we must come to a place where we realize that this is true about every single one of us. We are ultimately powerless to help ourselves. Because look, I mean, if if God helps those who help themselves, then what's the point of the cross? Romans chapter 5 verse 6 says this, You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Powerless. Someone who is powerless has no ability to help themselves, which is exactly the point. Jesus went to the cross because we couldn't help ourselves. We tried for thousands of years through rules and rituals and traditions and sacrifices. We tried to get back to God. We tried to bridge the divide that sin put between us, but we couldn't do it. We couldn't get to him. We were separated from his presence. And it was hidden behind the curtain of the temple to protect us. Only the high priest could go directly into God's presence once a year. And that was only by by following the exact purification methods that were required. This was kind of like seeing God at the top of the mountain. We tried everything in our power to hike up and and meet him. We put our heads down and we, we powered our way up only to find that every time we looked up, we were no closer to him. And so what did he do? He came down the mountain. He came near to us and he said, try no more, I am coming to you. And not only did he come near to us, he gave everything for us. Why? Because we had nothing to give. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. He says in verse 8 and 9, For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. If we could do it on our own, if we could help ourselves, then we would be deserving of the glory and the honor. But we couldn't, and we still can't. Our salvation is received and secured by faith as a gift from God, not by our works, not by our religious piety, not even by our devotion to him. The gift of salvation is so incredible because it means that God gets it right even in spite of us. You know, we get in the way, we mess up, we fall short, we sin against our maker, and we are powerless to help ourselves. And so church, we have to stop living as though our religious devotion is somehow going to place us in a higher standing with God. 
We don't devote ourselves to him so that we can earn some gold stars and a medal. You know, so often people will, will look around and will compare ourselves to others because we don't think that we're as good as them. It's like, oh man, you know, I, I wish I knew that much about the Bible. He knows so much. Oh man, she's, she's really good at praying. Oh man, that person has such a, a friendly personality. And we fall into this trap of, of comparing ourselves to others, thinking, man, if only I knew that much. If only I could pray that well. If only I could be that friendly and that personal. Then I could do big things for God. Man, we got to let go of that. we got to let go of that, that mindset and that mentality. And rather, we have to be intentional about focusing on imitating the incarnation. The, the prophet Micah says it this way in chapter 6 of his book. He says, and what does the Lord require of you? Uh, to read your Bible, to check things off your prayer list, to make sure that you go to church on Sundays. Oh, and you better get plugged into a small group as well. No! He says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. It's not about religious games. It's not about comparing yourselves to others. It's about living incarnationally. It's about imitating the incarnate God. Because you know who acted justly? Do you know who loved mercy? Do you know who walked humbly with God? Jesus did. His words and his deeds reflected justice, mercy, and humility. And if we want to imitate the incarnate God, that's what our lives should be characterized by. But unfortunately, some of us still treat our relationship with God like it's a, a checklist of things to achieve the next level. It's ingrained in our minds that if we just work hard enough, we're going to be promoted or we'll, we'll receive some sort of, of recognition and honor. And this is translated into how we understand our relationship with God. And if we aren't careful... Our devotion to the Lord can turn into us trying with everything in our power to hike up the mountain that we think God is on. We will put our heads down and we will power our way up to where we think he is. But here's the reality. You can try as you might to hike up that mountain, but you're going to be sorely disappointed to find that when you get there, God isn't there. Why? Because he came down the mountain and now he's at the bottom living and loving and serving amongst the vulnerable and the needy. In church, he is calling us to be found there with them. Jesus came to where we are, and now he is sending us out to be found amongst the vulnerable, amongst the needy, the outcast, and the oppressed peoples of this world. His heart is for justice, mercy, and humility. I heard a story recently that I think actually reflects this idea perfectly that I, I want to close our time with. I like to listen to a podcast pretty regularly called The New Activist. And on it, men and women from around the world, uh, they come and they onto this podcast and they share just how they individually are working to tackle some of the world's biggest problems and injustices. And last year, this podcast produced a five-part series called Esther in which they just dig into the horror of human trafficking by telling the story of some children and adults who were taken and enslaved in the illegal fishing industry uh, at a place called Lake Volta in Ghana. Now, the majority of the series tells the story of a girl named Esther and the inhumane conditions in which she was forced to work and live. Eventually, though, Esther was rescued and taken to an aftercare facility, but it wasn't without the heroic efforts of a fellow slave boy named Jeffrey. Jeffrey was a young boy when he was tricked by someone who claimed to be his aunt into thinking that he was leaving his home for a vacation before heading off to a good-paying job that would allow him to afford an education. He was taken, to his surprise, to this location, Lake Volta, in Ghana, along with many other boys, and they were forced to spend long, grueling hours in the sun catching fish for their captors to sell. 
They would work daily from 4 a.m. to 5 p.m. And the only food that they were given was this kind of sourdough mix that was mixed in with water. And at times, these boys would be forced to dive down deep into the water to untangle the nets that they used for fishing. Jeffrey said that they were given no training for this, and they were expected and forced to hold their breath for three to five minutes at a time. Unfortunately, there were many occasions when one of the boys would be untangling the nets, and he would get caught, and he wouldn't make it back up. If the boys ever complained or felt sick, they would get beaten with a rope and they would be forced back to work. And Jeffrey was stuck in these conditions for a year when the same people who claimed to be his aunt and uncle who dropped him off there in the first place, they showed back up at the lake, but this time they were with his younger brother. And what ends up happening is through this encounter, the biological son of these people who claim to be his aunt and uncle, uh, they, he gives Jeffrey his mobile phone so that Jeffrey would go into town and load more minutes on it and bring it back to him. Well, and this plan backfired on him because though it was dangerous, Jeffrey wisely chose to use that phone to call his real aunt and tell her about the situation that he had been living in. His aunt then begins to coordinate help for Jeffrey that would ultimately lead to law enforcement intervention and his rescue. One day, Jeffrey was at work untangling the nets on the bay when all of a sudden a large group of people show up on a boat and then it leads to his rescue. He was put on this boat with police officers. He was taken to another island for safety and he was freed from the bondage of slave labor. An incredible story and what we would expect to be the end of, of his experience there at Lake Volta. But it wasn't because what happens next is even more incredible. As the investigators and workers who rescued Jeffrey sat down with him uh, to kind of learn more about what he experienced, they learned that there were other people who may have also been on that island, because at this point, the, the only person that they knew about was Jeffrey. But Jeffrey revealed to them that there were many more children who were uh, trapped on this island in the same horrors that he had been living in. And Jeffrey was eager to get them help and get them to safety as well, so he shared names, locations, and descriptions of the other children who were also trapped on that island. And as the investigative team was planning their return to the island to do another rescue mission for the others that Jeffrey had mentioned, they were kind of weighing their options, trying to figure out, you know, what's going to be the best way for us to identify these, these people who he has described in these locations that he has described to us. And after deliberating, the team decided that the best option for success was to ask Jeffrey to go back with them. He was the only one who knew the island. He was the only one who knew firsthand where to go and who to look for. They knew it was a long shot, but they decided to ask him anyway. A few members of the team sat down with Jeffrey. They described all of his options, and they explained that they would understand if he was scared and didn't want to go. But if he went back, there was a possibility that all the people he had described to them could also be rescued and lead to their freedom. And in the podcast, they describe how there was no hesitation from Jeffrey. He willingly committed to go back to the island that he was just rescued from because he knew there was a possibility for the others who were trapped there to experience the same freedom that he had just experienced. And so Jeffrey didn't just give information. He gave himself. He volunteered to return to the same island that he was rescued from less than 24 hours earlier. A day ago, he was on a boat heading to freedom, and the next day he was on a boat heading back that same direction. This ultimately led to the liberation of many more children who were enslaved on the island, which you can learn more about if you check out the podcast again. It's called The New Activist, and the, the five-part series is called Esther. But man, what an incredible picture of sacrificial, self-giving love that Jeffrey showed. And what an incredible illustration of the gospel truth that Jesus chose to come near to us and give himself for us. 
Jeffrey's actions imitated those of the incarnate God that day because he chose to give up himself for the others who were trapped in bondage. And if we are going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, we must be willing, like Jesus and like Jeffrey, to give ourselves up for others. I don't know what that's going to look like for you. You know, maybe it's, it's finances. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your pride. Maybe it's your vocation. Maybe it's even your life. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. When we offer our lives to the one who offered his for us, our perspective, our passions, and our purposes are radically transformed. So that when we come across someone in need, the question changes from do we help to how do we help. And then when we do this, when we, when we change our perspective, we might just find that God's desire is to help those who can't help themselves through us, through our willingness to be near, through our willingness to sacrifice, and through our willingness to imitate the incarnate God. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you so much that you were willing to come near to us, that you are not a God who remains distant from our chaos and our mess and our brokenness, but you willingly chose to enter into it because you knew that that was the only way that we could be saved from it. And so we thank you so much for the, the gift and the offer of salvation, and I just pray that you would continue to lead each one of us in that, that we would follow in your footsteps after you, and that we would live the kind of life that you live, love the kind of people that you loved, and do the kind of things that you did. God, we love you so much. Please continue to transform our hearts, our minds, our purposes, and our passions, and lead them toward your mission. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.